Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Anna Moyer. And I'm your co-host, Laura Baena. And we're here with Emily Cox. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So could you maybe start us off by telling us a little bit about how you got into your research? Sure. Uh, so I am a, just finishing up my first year of my master's uh, in the occupational science stream of health and rehab at Western. And I did my undergrad at Western as well and started getting, uh, started taking, I wasn't a disability studies major, but I did take uh, those classes kind of throughout my undergrad and I've always had a sort of special interest in disability related work. So um, I knew that I wanted to do something related to that in my master's and was lucky enough to kind of take on a research project to do with uh, childhood disability and critical disability studies work. That's excellent. So could, we, could you tell us a little bit what's the plan with your research as a master's yeah. student? Yeah, so um, coming into the program, I had uh, a different idea for what I wanted to do for my research that's related, but uh, different. And uh, I kind of quickly realized that it was a bit too big for a master's that's so short. Um, so it was just too big of a project to take on. So my supervisor, uh, Dr. Gail Teachman, she's in the OTE school at Western and she um, kind of had a project. So she she hired me on before I started my master's um, as a summer intern um, on a specific project. And then the plan was for me to keep working on that project, but also my own research as I went into my master's, but we kind of switched plans. And now I've taken a small piece of that larger project that was already kind of established and taken it on as my own. So um, the project is related to uh, discourse and disability and uh, well as critical disabilities or critical discourse analysis uh, principles. So, uh, if you think about disability and the way that we think about it, there's kind of two camps of ways that you can think about it that are sort of seemingly opposed. So um, there's the rehab space and then the critical disability space. Um, and they're viewed sort of as on alternate ends of a spectrum. Um, but we kind of recognize that there's benefit to be brought from both sides. And so the project uh, sort of tries to bridge the two fields um, to try to come up with uh, a more beneficial conceptualization of uh, childhood disability that uh, will kind of reduce some of the current harms that people are experiencing right now. Okay, could you tell us maybe a little bit more about those two opposing fields and yeah. body? Yeah, so um, I guess like the first thing they teach you in disability studies is the social model and the medical model of disability, which uh, like kind of stems out to like, and they teach it in poli-sci too, they teach it in a couple of different places. And um, so essentially the medical model, well, the distinction for me comes down to where the, the disability is placed. So in medical and the medical model, um, disability is seen as internalized. It's seen as a characteristic of a person um, and it's, it's individualized and it's kind of everybody else's job to fix it and to help it. And so you find out that someone's child is going to be diagnosed with something and you, you, you feel a bit sad about it. You feel like, well, that's too bad. Like you're gonna have to do this work to however you choose to act on that disability. Um, whereas the social model uh, takes a very different approach and sees disability as located in society rather than in a particular individual. So they kind of distinguish between impairment and disability 
so if you take uh, the example of blindness, uh, the impairment would be the physical lack of sight, um, but that person would only become disabled once they're placed in an environment that is not built for them. So if the world was built with this impairment in mind, then that disability in a sense would cease to exist. Um, if you look at it in kind of like a strictly social model way, which comes along with its own kind of problems, right? Because um, it is a real lived experience and there is that person's experience matters and sometimes reducing it to just the social seems a bit, um, it doesn't seem like the most productive thing. So to kind of try to bridge those two uh, ideas is what we're trying to do. And so. So sorry, Emily, that I interrupt. Uh, but first of all, I think I would like to know what do what do you or like the people that you work with define as disability? Just uh, to have that more like clear. <laughs> Because I, I feel like there are so many things mm -hmm. that could be called disability are, and not, are mm -hmm. not really disability. So I'm just wondering what do you... Um, yeah, it's hard. I don't know exactly what I would say, but I would say I, I view it as more of an identity or an experience rather than... Um, Yeah, as an identity, basically. So that's kind of like I, well, sometimes I mess up, but I try to use what's called identity first language. So calling someone a disabled person rather than a person with a disability, which when I first started learning about these things felt like so wrong to me. I would hear people call someone a disabled person or an autistic person when they're talking about them. And I would say, oh, that's not right because a lot of people are taught person first language. So calling someone a person with a disability places the person first and is in, in theory um, valuing that person over and above their disability. Um, but when you start, start to learn from disabled people themselves and self-advocates, you learn that um, their disability is often at the foreground of their identity, which is why they choose to identify as a disabled person rather than a person with this disability kind of tacked on the end. Um, so Yeah, I don't know what I would call my definition of disability, but I would say uh, definitely has to do with identity and experience uh, other than like symptoms. Mm -hmm. I also think that plays into the differences in identity in terms of what point in your life you may acquire a disability or again, you may be born with a disability. I think that speaks a lot to how people want to self-identify as well. Yes. So I would like to know a little bit more about childhood disability and, and how does this fit into your model? Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting because, well, so what I initially was in, interested in was early intervention and the ways, so a child is born disabled and oftentimes parents feel like this is like the time that they have to do everything that they possibly can to help their child like acclimate to whatever they see as being normal or do everything that they can because they're in, still in this de developmental process. So it's a time when all this discourse starts to come into play and people feel this immense pressure to help their kid or to fix their kid. And we're sort of questioning, well, like, what does that mean? Why do we want people to be independent? What does normal mean? And why do we have such strongly held values? Which is where um, I think critical disability studies is very, um, well, it's obviously very theoretical um, and socially and politically charged. So um, these ideas surrounding like, how can you make your child as independent as they can possibly be is really rooted in neoliberalism, right? And the idea that if they're not able to grow up and then contribute to society and be independent, then what is their worth? Um, it's like really big ideas in that area. So 
Uh, those are things that we're still working through. With this, I would like to know uh, what your like um, the interest of your research is. I, you said that you are interested in the discourse and this uh, dis disability. So, mm -hmm. are you uh, trying to evaluate how uh, we talk about disability and how we communicate these uh, mm -hmm. these kind yeah. of facts, or your what's your what's your approach on this mm -hmm. matter? So, we're looking at discourse, but in kind of a different way than. Um, I guess the standard definition of discourse would be, so it's Foucauldian based project, um, the theory behind it. And so when we talk about discourse, we're kind of talking about more than just uh, words and ways of talking and ways of thinking, but uh, kind of the patterns of the, the ways that we talk and the ways that we think about specific things um, and the, how that's really, really uh, deeply connected with power and knowledge um, and uh, how kind of power is instead of maybe coming from the top down, rather circulating through discourse. So the way that we're uh, looking at it is uh, in two phases. So the first phase is just a textual analysis. So uh, looking at uh, text in both critical disability studies and children's rehab to identify what the like main ways that we're talking about child, children's disability are. Um, so what the dominant discourses is. Um, so things like independence and deficit-based views and things like that. And then in the second phase of the project, we are doing interviews with um, both key stakeholders in critical disability studies. So um, like scholars and activists. And then on the other hand, uh, interviews with uh, uh, practitioners, so uh, rehabilitation practitioners who specialize in childhood disability to kind of understand the ways that um, those discourses that we identify in the first phase um, are being like reproduced or maintained or just how, how they're shaping uh, the everyday lives of the people that we're interviewing. Um, and then we have an advisory panel, so of made up of many people in the disability space, um, different people. And so with them, we'll, we're hoping to take everything we learned and uh, come up with some new way of thinking about uh, disability that can help inform uh, rehab and kind of try to reduce some of the harms. Um, so maybe could you tell us a little bit more about what the exact steps are of your, your research project? Um, mm. You mentioned that you're going to be doing different stages of interviews like how many people are you thinking of interviewing mm -hmm. so from either group so we'll be taking i think it's i think it's 10 to 12 or 8 to 13 uh people from either side so from critical disability studies and then from children's rehabilitation and those will be qualitative individual interviews uh where we ask them things like that's well, we're asking things like, what, what is your definition of disability? How do you think of disability? Do you think that this is the same way that the rest of society thinks about disability? Or saying things like, you know, like we've seen in the literature that there is kind of this um, opposition in views. Do you see that like playing out in your workplace? Um, or what do you see as um, the future for children or disabled children? And then the critical discourse analysis piece comes in after, right? So that's um, in the analysis. And that's another part that I'm still uh, definitely a newbie at, <laughs> like Foucauldian critical discourse analysis. It's very, very complex. Um, and we're lucky enough to have a team of people who have like dedicated their careers to doing it. Um, so I'm definitely new at that, but it's really, really interesting to um, identify the ways that power and discourse influences our everyday lives. But not only that, it's, 
their lives, our lives are being shaped by it, but everything that we do and say also then contributes to the reproduction of that discourse, right? So it's a feedback loop that's seemingly never ending, especially under Foucault's theory, like discourse is inescapable. There's no way out of it. The only way to, to ever escape it is to get really, really critical about why we're thinking the way that we are and to move past it and create a new discourse and move out of it is like next to impossible under his theory. So that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> That's excellent. So we, uh, uh, I'm wondering if you have maybe some examples of studies that like these that have proved that some discourse uh, shaped the way some people is living and how changing that discourse could affect and have like an improvement on life mm -hmm. of, of other per, of, of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, there's lots of studies out there on discourse um, and the ways that discourse influences our lives. One that I'm thinking of right now is from a postdoc in my lab. Her name's Katie Ma, and she does um, her research on conceptualizations of concussions. So that's kind of like a way, or it's like it's bridges into the science, right? Because she's talking about the ways that kids understand um, and kind of conceptualize their concussions um, and how that's wrapped up with um, sort of discourse on risk in childhood um, has real effects for their health and uh, their recovery from concussions. So that's kind of interesting. I think that's such an interesting study. And I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit more about how specific discourse plays out in terms of early childhood disability and mm -hmm. specific examples maybe. Yeah, like I think one of the, the biggest ones that I see or that I've noticed is definitely of independence, which is, it's a discourse that operates everywhere, not just in uh, children's disability. But so your child is born and you feel the need to put them into all these therapies to help them become as independent as they possibly can. But if you really strip it back and look at independence, who is really independent? And what does that mean? Like, I would argue that nobody is truly independent. We're all interdependent and we all rely on others for all kinds of things. So where's that line that you draw between like independent enough to not be a problem or to not be a burden on society, you know what I mean? So that's kind of, uh, that's been a, a topic of interest for me is how can we move away from independence to thinking about how we're all interdependent and what's the point of pressuring this like ideal of independence. That's very cool. Just a couple days ago, I was thinking, or I, I saw an article about Darwinian versus Margulis. I don't know, these are two uh, like evolutionary theorists. And then Darwin has this idea of like the survival of the fetus, right? Like just the most adapted can survive, whether mm -hmm. Margulis will propose. No, uh, for example, the like the, the complex cells come from cooperation <laughs> from mm -hmm. a bacteria that incorporates uh, another bacteria and they cooperate and they become a complex system mm -hmm. and how we should like shape our discourse and like our lives in order to make cooperation like a more fundamental part of who we are and how we understand society and Yes, as you said, what's really independence? Like, how, how does that make sense for a, an organism that is so complex and needs of mm -hmm. so many things, right? Like, we need social interaction, we need food, we need, and all of these things we cannot provide 
ourselves, right? We are not plants. <laughs> so I think that's very interesting that you propose um, to like re-question what we understand for independence. I think that's a very interesting uh, point. I think it's also kind of rooted in our culture, right? Like if you look at how people in this westernized culture think about disability versus how it's thought about in more collectivist cultures, it's very different. Um, that's another topic that I don't know a ton about, but I do know that it's just thought about very, very differently uh, depending on where you go. And it's really rooted in uh, whether just how collectivistic or how individualistic your society is. So. Mm -hmm. In terms of moving forward, is there any suggestions that you would have for parents who are potentially going to have a disabled child? And are there better ways that they can go about um, providing their child with a good structure and support system that isn't necessarily only focused on independence? Mm -hmm. I think like broadening broadening your horizons and that you're not just getting all of your information from your early interventionist doctor, um, maybe reaching out to see if in your area there are like self-advocacy networks. Like for example, in a lot of cities, there's a really, really strong autistic self-advocacy network um, that's already in place that provide really amazing resources and specific resources for new parents as well. Um, and there's lots and lots of amazing books written, none that I can think of the names of right now, of course, but written by um, self-advocates. So trying to get as much information from you as you can from people who have lived experience um, will probably be a lot more beneficial um, than, I'm not, not to throw away your doctor, but to um, kind of supplement that information with um, information from people who have uh, lived experiences of uh, what your child could potentially uh, experience. Again, so that very much goes back to your idea of the, to the two social models where you're very much yeah. combining them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think there's often, well, in my early experience with disability studies, um, I felt like, I felt conflicted. I felt like, well, the medical is not all bad. Like people experience negative, they have negative experiences. And sometimes people want to go to the doctor and they want them to fix it for them. And should that be like wrong? Um, and so kind of figuring out how we can uh, balance the two and uh, in a beneficial way rather than throwing out one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious about this second part that you talk about, about the panel of people that is going to uh, give you advice or feedback about mm -hmm. the results you get. How do you select that panel? Uh, like which kind of disabilities are you thinking on including or mm -hmm. any kind, or do you have any specifics for this, for mm -hmm. this, for your, how you call it, for the, advisory. your target? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're, um, the advisory panel is made up of, I think a disabled scholar, uh, disabled child and their parent, and there's two others that I can't remember. We haven't formed the panel yet, um, so we don't have it because uh, we haven't actually started that phase of the research yet. But essentially, they'll be involved at critical points throughout the process. So kind of at the beginning to refine and make sure that exactly what we're asking um, aligns with, well, in a lot of socially oriented research, there's this question of you're sitting there in your office asking these questions about a specific community, but are these the questions that matter to those people in that community? Like, does it, do they care? Um, so that's basically what we're trying to make sure 
is happening is that we're asking questions and asking them in such a way that resonate with people who are in that community. Um, and so they're gonna be involved in that stage. And then at the, they'll be involved at specific points throughout, but then the main point will be at the very end, once we've kind of done our broader analysis, um, they will kind of come in to uh, advise us on how we can take it forward and how uh, we can actually enact it. And so like what policies are affecting their lives right now that could be targeted um, or what, what are the specific struggles that they're going through at this point in time that we are able to kind of address and to help them move forward on. Are there any examples, especially in Canada at the moment, that you could maybe bring up of, of an issue that is currently uh, happening for the accessibility community? Um, well, there's one project that I'm working on that's really interesting and it is happening right now. This is like a little bit of self-promotion, but so it's called the Access Project. And so this is a project where we are uh, working to create an accessibility standard for event holders. So, um, of course, there's the AODA um, that says the like bare bones minimum requirements of what a building has to do to be accessible. Um, but beyond that, A, there's a lot of buildings that just still aren't accessible. And B, people are holding events in spaces that are not accessible or holding them in such a way that it's not accessible. So what we're doing is we're trying to create a set of guidelines that can go above and beyond the AODA that we can give to uh, people who hold events. So like Western, uh, who holds big alumni events or like banks that hold large events. Um, and so creating a standard that they can then sign on to that will say that we will not hold an accessible events um, and uh, kind of going above. So like the AODA focuses a lot on um, physical accessibility, so ramps and things like that. But of course, there's many other ways that places can be inaccessible, such as like bright lights, loud noises, um, like lack of a schedule, like lack of a following like a strict schedule. Um, and so we're trying to come up with the guidelines to then give to event holders and to sign off on to say that they will no longer hold their events in inaccessible places or inaccessible ways. Amazing. <laughs> That's very, that's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was wondering in, in a more personal note, uh, what drives your curiosity to, into this uh, matter or why were you interested on in this? Because yeah. this is something that for me coming from a different country, this is something that we don't really talk about much. Mm -hmm. But here, uh, I think that this is growing a lot mm -hmm. and very fast and I'm glad for it, but I, I, I'm wondering what drives you or why did you get interested yeah. on this topic? Yeah, it's always been a special interest of mine going back to like elementary school. Um, and then when I went to university, I worked as a support worker throughout my undergrad to uh, support myself through my undergrad. <laughs> and then um, I also work at a uh, uh, like retreat center, like a summer camp for adults um, and some children with disabilities called the Shadow Lake Center. Um, so that's been a really cool experience for me in um, kind of actually enacting some of the ideas that we think about. So um, bringing people to a place where they can make all the decisions they want for themselves and do whatever it is on their own um, without like, because a lot of people who come there come from group homes where their regimen and their daily routine is heavily, heavily restricted and they don't have much choice. So being able to bring them to a place where they have all the choice in the world um, is a really eye-opening experience and really meaningful. So could you tell me a little bit more about your experience working as a personal support worker? Yeah. Um, so I worked through an organization called VON in London, 
And um, so I worked with just one, one person at a time and they were both children. And that was a really great experience for me, especially, you know, being at university, you're so like busy all the time while you think about is school and then being able to go for like however many hours a week and just do like, and go swimming with someone or like go on a walk or something. It's really amazing. But it also opens your eyes to uh, a lot of the problems that are inherent in these systems um, where like a lot of, a lot of what happens is like centered around money and needs. And so you, you notice uh, some problematic things, which uh, for me just fueled me to kind of uh, keep learning more about uh, disability justice and what I could do to uh, help some of, the, some of the, some of the problems that I was noticing. That's cool. And just a, as a last note that I would like to ask people sometimes because I work from my home, so I don't really need to go out a lot. But with the pandemic, I guess your um, research was on pause for a while, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was wondering if you had to like, re like change your schedule or how did you adapt to the pandemic in order yeah. to do it? Yeah. So uh, last year, I was doing my kind of coursework, so I wasn't really getting much into my research. So luckily it didn't actually too heavily impact my work. We did uh, decide to switch to doing online interviews, but uh, based off what I've been involved in and in research in the past year, um, I prefer doing uh, interviews online rather than in person. It's easier, it's more accessible in many ways. Um, so I was lucky enough to not have to change too much about uh, my research plan, given that I'm not actually set to start uh, the study until September, um, and we're going to go with online. And in many ways, that yeah, it's helpful because we get to talk to people that we might not be have been able to talk to if we were limited to doing our uh, in-person interviews. So in that way, it was helpful. Amazing. And I think that's very similar to I think some of the event planning that's happening now in the discourse. Mm -hmm very same same issues so yeah. thank you so much um, we're just about out of time um, if anyone wants to learn more about your research is there a website email or social media that you'd like to share uh, they can email me at ecox so ecox29 at uwo.ca thank you so this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Anna Moyer, and my co-host was Laura Vina. We've been speaking with Emily Cox, and this episode was also produced by Laura. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at adcraft at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.